Hi there. My name is John Bensalia. Welcome back to my Perpetual Outsider podcast. Now, today I'm going to be looking at The Underwater Menace, which is uh, another Atlantis tale after the last one, which was The Time Monster, which I have previously commentated on a few episodes ago. Just a quick reminder, I'm also on Patreon where I will be uploading more episodes of uh, the Monday Doctor Who from 2005 onwards. Um, available now are Rose and The End of the World, which are available to unlock from just £3 a month. And there will be more on the way, I promise. So uh, you, you hopefully you won't be wasting your money, I hope. Well, it depends on what your definition of wasting of money is. But anyway, without further ado, uh, still not managing to get the self-promotion right. He says, we're ready to look at the Underwater Menace episode one, counting down in five, four, three, two, one. Here we go. Now, this is going to be a challenge and a half, isn't it? Because what I'm working with here is um, a slideshow, really. And not even a very good one at that, because for whatever reason... Um, when it came to releasing the Underwater Menace on DVD, um, the DVD makers couldn't be asked to actually come up with a half-decent reconstruction. And apparently the restoration team had actually offered to come up with a, with a good reconstruction, which is generally the standard um, um, that, that we're used to on, on many DVDs. But for whatever reason... Probably money, I guess. You know, obviously the money wasn't in the kitty to come up with uh, with uh, a reasonable reconstruction. So we're kind of playing guessing games with uh, still photographs. As Jamie has uh, come aboard the TARDIS for the first time, carries straight on from the end of the Highlanders with uh, with Jamie McCrimmon now becoming a full-time uh, Doctor Who regular. And um, this is this is a this is um, from the uh, the fourth season of Doctor Who, um, which was kind of in a in a bit of a period of flux. And I'm not talking about the uh, the Jodie Whittaker story. Um, it's kind of they're kind of you know sort of looking ahead to the new and kind of ringing out the old. I mean, they you know the reduction team have already got rid of William Hartnell, and they're about to get rid of Ben and Polly about three stories down the line. Which, which I think is a, is a bit of a shame, but obviously they're they're looking they're looking ahead to the future. So, yeah, season four is a very strange one because it's a because you know so much is changing, and b um, not much kind of visual evidence is actually around. I mean, you've got one off the top of my head: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think only ten episodes. Out of however many they did, I think about four, you know, forty or the thing, maybe thirty-five or forty, I forget. But only ten episodes actually exist in their original form in the archives. So you're playing guessing games with um, with a reconstruction here. But I, I do like this Tardis team actually. I, I think they work quite well together, even though obviously the line, the quota of lines has to be shared quite evenly and spread quite thinly, actually, between all four. 
but there was a nice moment just now, which I, which I talked over, which is where, you know, they were wondering where they've landed. And, uh, you know, I think Ben was uh, hoping that it wasn't going to be the Daleks. Polly was hoping it was going to be uh, um, the modern day again. And Jamie was just wondering, what the hell has he got himself into? So that, that was that was a nice, uh, nice little moment. Because, of course, the underwater menace is not really regarded that highly. It's not really the first choice of uh, go-to Patrick Troughton episodes. It's generally regarded as a bit of a turkey for, for various reasons, which I'll, which I'll come to over the course of the commentary. But, but you know, it's, it's quite a, an interesting setup. But the problem is, and this is where the poor reconstruction really comes unstuck because you've got a lot of action going on and not much in the way of dialogue and you don't know what the hell is going on at the moment i'm just looking at polly jamie and ben looking at something off screen and all the while who knows what's happening i, I don't know whether or not, whether or not this will get animated i really don't know because, of course, at the time of writing, um, they've, uh, they've the big cheeses at the BBC have announced that there will be no more animations, which I think is a crying shame. You know, I, th I think for good or bad, I think the animations are a great way of actually bringing the stories alive. You know, they, they really work quite well, most of them. Some of them not so well, but overall, I, I, I think there are huge success and I think it's a crying shame that we aren't going to be getting anymore but they have said that before you know but so hopefully never say never maybe they'll get enough funding you know it always comes down to money doesn't it so there's Polly standing outside some caves still in the um the same costume that we that she wore in the Highlanders now this is quite unusual because what to them in 1966, 67 was in the, the near future, is now to us history, because I think this is set in 1970. Um, so it's not really, uh, or at least, or at least, you know, kind of, you know, a little bit beyond that. I think, I think she says, you know, something was made in 1970. I, I don't know. I, I think we'll come on to this. It's been a long time since I've seen it, actually. So... Uh... Polly's just screamed. This is not a good story for Polly, by the way. She just screams and whinges and weeps her way through the story like like no tomorrow. It's uh, it's not a good one. Which again, I, I think is is a massive shame because the previous one, the Highlanders, I think was was a great one for Annika Wills. She was proactive. She was confident. She led the all all the screaming and whinging was left to her friend Kirsty, played by Hannah Gordon, and of course. She's kind of taken on that role with great gusto in in this story, which uh, which I think is a shame. How many times going to say shame? God, it's it's going to be the Brigadier Bandera commentary, isn't it? Oh, shame! So now, what is that? I mean, I I can't even tell whether that's the Doctor. I think it's the Doctor leaning over and looking at something, but it just looks like a great big um, boulder in a coat. Oh, look at it. Yeah, I think the Underwater Menace, I think it's managed to claw back a little bit of um, dignity, I think. 
ever since the uh, the missing episode, episode two was found in 2011. And I think it's actually managed to gain back a little bit of respect. I don't know. I, I think, um, how would I feel if, um, out, of all, out of all the missing episodes that could be rediscovered, how would I feel about the Underwater Menace being discovered? I Episodes one and four, well, yeah. I mean, any, any, any new discovery, I think, is actually welcome. And actually, I think um, out of them all, out of all the missing episodes I'd like to be rediscovered would be the Space Pirates, because the reconstruction is very difficult to actually get into. I, you know, I, I can't, you know, despite the best efforts of uh, uh, of Luke's Cannon, who, who did a reconstruction, and they did their level best with it, um, you still can't figure out what the hell's going on. So uh, hopefully somebody's got it in their garden shed or something. So I think the Doctor, Jamie, Polly and Ben, they've all been captured, I think. They're now in some, uh, they've now been gassed, I think, you know, judging by that um, that noise, which is going... Yeah, it's it's very hard to tell what's going on because you know because the pictures aren't moving or or at least they're not changing as much as as they would with a you know a regular reconstruction. I don't know how on earth they're going to do the Blu-ray for season four. That is, I've, I've got a feeling that's going to be probably left to last because not enough of it exists, and um, you've also got the added problem of doing reconstructions for. Uh, or, you know, to bring the smugglers, uh, the Highlanders, and also this one to life, because in its, fa its favour, you, you know, you, you do have some good animations for Power of the Daleks, Evil of the Daleks, uh, Faceless Ones, and Macro Terror. Ah, oh, thank you, Polly. Yes, she's just said 1970, so... Uh, She would have been useful with uh, with a whole unit unit conundrum dating actually. Patrick Trout, of course, superb doctor, one of my all time favourites. Yeah, I think if I had, to, I, I think he probably actually. He'd be my second favourite Doctor after Tom Baker. I, th I think I, I, I just really enjoy his Doctor uh, for so many reasons. Just the quirkiness and the fun and the humour and the warmth that he brings to the role. And also that kind of extra bit of vulnerability. You know, he's quite, on the surface, he's quite shambling and bumbling. And you never really quite know whether he's going to win the day. But of course he does. And, you know, all of that is... a. Uh, is a mask for this, you know, this real burning intelligence um, and this, you know, this real quick wit. And I, I just think everything comes together just to, just to bring this wonderful performance to life. And uh, yeah, I, I suppose at the time viewers were still getting used to him because this is only his third story. 
so uh, you know anybody expecting kind of like more and more serious approach taken by William Hartner we're probably still getting used to this guy yeah what would social media have made of William Hartnell becoming Patrick Troutney. It would have gone through the roof. You know, Twitter would have just gone, what? I'm not sure whether Patrick Troutney would have got so many not my doctor, uh, <laughs> not, not my doctor uh, hashtags. Um, I, 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 I don't think he would, to be honest, because I think, you know, you instantly believe in Patrick Troutney as the doctor, whereas, uh, Unfortunately, I, I just I just don't buy Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor at all, I'm afraid. I, I just don't still. Sorry. Sorry. Please don't. Please don't hate me. But, I mean, it's, it's quirks like this. You know, Patrick Chowton, you know, just chowing down on plates of fish. I think it's plankton, isn't it? Yeah, he's, he just... Just something in, in his delivery, you know, you just instantly believe in him as this... You know, this strange little alien from, you know, from Gallifrey. Whereas Jodie Whittaker just sort of, you know, just guns and mugs and shouts away through things with, uh, she's, you know, she's a little more than an ex slightly eccentric play school teacher, really. But anyway, en enough of this, uh, this, uh, this anti-Whittaker babbling you know she's got her fans and that's um, and that's great you know I'm, I'm, you know it's it's just not for me so i, I think i'll move swiftly on uh to this uh um a chap who's walked in with rather natty headgear i think it's uh i think it's tom watson as ramo yeah we're, we meet we're meeting the natives who are clutching very uh very obvious cardboard spears and forks and addressed in what looks like the the Caliax garb from the Stones of Blood. I mean, maybe it's a maybe it's a common fashion trend among baddies to look like the Caliax. I, I don't know. Hardly any incidental music in this one. Dudley Simpson does the music, but there's there's not really much. I mean, it's it's mostly uh, music free. Screen grab there, Patrick Trouton looking like he's just a bit of plankton has gone down the wrong way. He just looks quite upset. Excuse me, slurping my coffee as usual. Still getting over a cold and a sore throat. What are those um, those strange kind of like fish masks that they carry? Very, it's like they made them in school and um, have papier mache or something and. Um, they're proudly displaying them everywhere they go. I've got to say, Ramo's headgear, is, it looks like it's got a life of its own. I mean, it's, um, yeah, some quite eccentric costume choices in this one. But one good, one good thing is Jack Robinson's designs, which actually look quite quite large scale. The, um, the, the Hall of Atlantis, which we, um, which we're going in now, the main kind of, uh, the sacrifice room or whatever, where the um, three companions are about to be sacrificed. It actually looks very good. Very, very high budget. What? Oh, no, sorry, sorry, I, I was wondering what that noise was, but it's um, some strange choral warbling in the background. It's uh, it's probably the, the great-grandfathers of Murray's pompous choir doing some strange warbling. 
don't don't have choirs in Doctor Who for God's sake. They, they just don't work. You've actually got kids at the sacrifice. I mean, what are they are they supposed to look on as um the doctor's companions get chewed alive, get you know, eaten alive by um by a load of sharks? That's gonna be a good childhood memory, isn't it? Hey, what did you do in your holidays, kids? Oh, I saw um three companions get eaten alive by sharks. Yeah, great childhood memory. You've also got Peter Stevens there as Lolan. Um previously been in Previous season, actually, is uh, Cyril in The Celestial Toymaker. It's got a little bit of a Biggins vibe about him. Oh, there's a shot. Jules cameo there. I don't, I don't know how well directed this was. I, I just no idea. Um, this, this was directed by Julia Smith. Who would go on to be a big name in EastEnders. And apparently, I, I don't think she got on that well with Patrick Troughton. I, I think it was quite a, quite a difficult shoot, this one. From what I remember on the uh, the commentary and the, and the making of it, I don't think they got on too well. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm, I, th I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the success really comes down to, you know, the, you know, not just, you know, how well the director does, but, you know, how well they got on with the cast. And I think there were one or two in Patrick Charlton's time that were quite, um, quite old school and um, didn't really kind of like um, a more sort of spontaneous approach. I think Maurice Barry was another one. I think he used to be quite, uh, quite strict in his approach. He used to carry a, you know, music stand in the battle. Conductor's baton, and would actually uh, go to the lengths of actually moving the uh, the scenery around. Oh god, here we go! Polly screaming. Oh, close up of a fish. I mean, anybody that didn't really kind of know what was going on and had the sound turned down. I mean, they'd be wondering, okay, well, are they going to be eaten by a goldfish? Maybe that you know they're going to be devoured by millions of goldfish. I mean, I, I thought goldfish only ate like, um, you know, like the, those little kind of, you know, little bits of food that you get in a pet shop. But you, you, you just can't really tell what's going on, you know, and any kind of attempt to pace is, is unfortunately lost, which which is why I think I think it would be quite good if um, the missing episodes were discovered, because you just you can't get any idea of what's going on apart from Polly screaming. And then Zaroff just suddenly... Walks in, you know, there, you know, it's like boom, very easy. He's, he's like the um, he's like shopkeeper and Mr. Ben Joseph Forst here. Um, it's the infamous Saroff. Um, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about him lots uh, further down the line, especially in the in the third episode when he his levels of ham, you know, the hamometer literally goes into overdrive here. And he, he he manages to get an audience with the Doctor here, but this this is a nice character moment actually because the Doctor um he's bluffing he's constantly bluffing his way through the proceedings, um and he he tries to arrange an audience with Zaroff on the, on the camp that he's got some something very uh 
very important to discuss with him. And of course, of course, it's all a bluff. You know, he's he's got absolutely nothing, nothing whatsoever. And it's quite interesting how after two two introductory stories, Patrick Troughton is actually starting to dial it down a little bit because he can be quite outlandish in his first two stories. You know, he's he's quite clowning in uh, in the power of the Daleks, and then he's donning various disguises in uh, in the Highlanders, and it kind of you know the Highlanders generally revolves around the Doctor dressing up as you know and adopting various disguises like a German doctor. And a washerwoman, and you know, and um, and the red coat as well, and that's pretty much what he's remembered for in, the, in that in that story. Whereas in this one, he's um, I mean, especially compared to Professor Zaroff, he's actually generally quite sane. Um, so it's really where you know the, the first this instance of the second Doctor's character coming through this kind of successful blending of comedy and drama and I, I think it works well oh mad laughing from Zaroff there and of course the, the other companions have now been uh, they've, they've now been taken to Ramo no is it Ramo oh what's his name um well he's played by Colin Jevons anyway who's uh He's, he's a good actor, maybe a little bit too good for this because he doesn't get a great deal to do. Um, I, I forget, I forget what he's called, but he's got very obvious wig and dodgy eyebrows. And of course, Polly is now about to be turned into a fish, and Jamie and Ben are about to be sent to do some work. So it's debatable whether. Being eaten by a shark or being turned into a fish is—it's uh, debatable which is the the better choice, really. I'm not really quite sure being turned into a fish would uh, would be a fun experience, to be honest. It's difficult to tell, but judging from that screen grab, it looks like there was a nice little bit of back projection there. You've got the the fish people uh, being shown on the screen. A kind of giant bubble screen. He says, drinking the last of his coffee. So yeah, that, that looks like a neat bit of um, neat bit of direction there. Actually, very difficult to tell though. It's quite a grim concept, actually, um, being turned into a fish. <laughs> You're not turning me into a fish. <laughs> this is no place to be turned into a fish. No. No, she's she's uh, she's going to be the sole survivor. Maybe I I don't know. And certainly a lot of cod acting in this as well. Right. Okay. Not fish jokes. Shame. So I think we're actually coming into the other cliffhanger when uh, and Polly's actually going to be turned into a fish. But so you've got a quick, um, quick bit of dialogue between the Doctor and Zaroff here.
there's Ara, who keeps popping up to say that. I mean, Ara is really the unsung hero of the Underwater Menace. She keeps popping up at the last minute in various intervals to uh, to save the day, uh, which which she does with uh, with great gusto. Played by Catherine Howe, who uh, went on to be a a musician actually, and according to the commentary, uh, went out with uh, Fraser Hines and for a very short while, and uh, Fraser Hines bought her a copy of uh, I'm a Believer by the Monkees. I'm just picturing them in the recording, you know, you know, like you go into those uh, old fashioned record shops and, you know, you you put the headphones on in those booths and I, I can picture them, you know, just sort of cuddling up together, listening to the monkeys, I'm a believer. Well, that's the end of the episode as Polly is about to be turned into a fish and you've got a, well, it looks a bit like John Lennon there in fish garb as the, the final, final image. So, will Polly be turned into a fish, or will she live to survive another day? Anyway, we'll find out the next time in episode two of The Underwater Menace. We're moving images that time, so hopefully a bit easier to commentate. But for now, this is me, John Bensalia, bidding adieu. So, goodbye for now. Thank you for listening.